Good evening, everyone. Welcome um, along. My name's Andy. Um, I'm the artistic director of Squint uh, Theatre Company. Um, we're a new writing and devised work company, and uh, we research shows in a journalistic way. So uh, over several months, sometimes years, we delve into a subject that we know very little about, uh, and we speak to uh, communities and experts uh, and begin to devise and create a uh, piece of theatre from that, usually involving writers in the room involved in, in that process. We kind of ask big questions as much as possible about the world that we live in. And then we present work through ensemble storytelling. Um, our latest piece is a piece called Fear and Loathing. Um, and we were very lucky about a year ago to get some support from the Kevin Spacey Foundation. We won their Artists of Choice Award. And it allowed us to travel um, to America and visit about 13 states over the course of two months, um, just in the lead up to the uh, presidential election, uh, October, November time. Um, we were kind of noticing, I suppose, before Brexit, so it was about May last year, the anti-establishment feeling that was growing here and um, as Trump sort of built towards his nomination, what was going on in America as well. And we decided to run towards Trump voters to try and understand that better, to understand their context. Um, we thought at the time that we were making a show about a peripheral group of voters, um, and uh, we were wrong. Um, as I say, we travelled to about 13, 14 states, did hours of interviewing, went to lots of rallies. Um, and the privilege of making work in the way that we do is that we get to engage with people from completely different worlds and backgrounds to our own, and also speak to and work with incredible experts. And three of those um, are here tonight as part of our ongoing process. Um, so to introduce them, David Goodhart is here just to my left. Uh, he's a journalist, an author, and a think tanker. Um, he's currently head of the demography department at Policy Exchange. Um, his book on post-war immigration, The British Dream, was runner-up for the Orwell Book Prize. And his new book, which is a Sunday Times bestseller, uh, is The Road to Somewhere, which identifies the divisions in British society. And it helps to explain both the Brexit and Trump votes. Um, to his left is Sarah Churchwell. She's a uh, professorial fellow in American literature and chair of public understanding of the humanities at the University of London. She's known for her expertise in 20th and 21st century fiction, and her books include The Invention of the Great Gatsby and The Many Lives of Marilyn Monroe. She commentates regularly on the intersection between politics and culture, uh, stating in a recent article, to understand a culture, you must know its stories. She's currently writing a short book about the history of the American dream. Um, and Gabriel Gatehouse um, is at the end. He is a foreign correspondent for BBC Newsnight. His current focus is the phenomenon known as populism. He's reported on the rise of Donald Trump from rural Indiana, Indiana and the Rust Belt, um, Ohio. And he was in France during their election recently. Uh, he's previously been based as a reporter in East Africa, Libya, Iraq, and Ukraine. Um, and this is one of many conversations that we're having over the next few weeks with a really diverse range of commentators and experts. Uh, we're interested today in the reality gap, the distance between what established politicians tell voters is going on and the perceived realities of everyday people. And I thought maybe a good place to start uh, our conversation would be to ask our panel to just articulate um, what the divide is in America today as each of you see it. Um, David, could you start us off? Uh, okay, well, I'm, I'm going to talk my book, literally, um, um, because I think, um, I mean, my book is actually mainly about the value divides in British society, but I think a lot of it applies to all rich, rich democracies. Um, and I, I make this distinction in the book between uh, what I call the people from anywhere and the people from somewhere. Uh, you can see where I'm going. The people from anywhere tend to be 
highly educated and mobile. They tend to value the things that the life associated with, with those things tends to value. Openness, mobility, comfortable with fluidity, autonomy. Um, and they tend not to have strong group attachments. I think very important distinction between anywheres and somewheres. Somewhere people tend to be much more, tend to be less well-educated, tend to be much more rooted, tend to value the things that those lives tend to value, security, familiarity, uh, and tend to value group attachments, uh, like I say, much more strongly than anywheres, and tend to be more wary. I mean, the two huge distinctions, I think, is this point about group attachments and attitudes to social change. Um, anywheres, in, in British society, by the way, I've, I've invented these categories. I, ha I've, I haven't invented the value groups, and it sounds very binary, but if you read my book, as authors boringly say, uh, you would find, um, I mean, I have a huge variety of anywheres and a huge variety of somewheres. There's also a big in-betweener group, the more extreme anywheres, I call global villages, more extreme somewheres, are, are hard authoritarians and xenophobes, um, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so it's, it's slightly less binary than it sounds. Um, but I think those, the, uh, the, the, the anywhere population is a minority. Uh, it's a smaller group, but 20, 25% of the population. Somewheres are about 50% of the population. And um, there's also this very useful distinction um, invented by the American sociologist, Talcott Parsons, talking about human identity on a spectrum between achieved identities and ascribed identities. And I think um, that also uh, is, is useful in this context anywheres tend to have achieved identities, identities that come from passing exams when you're young, going to good universities, having more or less uh, successful professional careers. Uh, and so your sense of yourself comes from your achievements. Um, your sense of yourself uh, is, is about who you, in a sense, have kind of made yourself. Um, well, there's a sort of myth of self-invention amongst anywheres. Um, but, um, and that means, of course, that you can, your, your identity is sort of portable. You can kind of fit in almost anywhere. Um, whereas if you have a mainly ascribed identity, or the, uh, the more important part of your identity is the, you know, I'm white, male, British. These are sort of things about myself uh, I can't change. Um, well, unless I become transgender. Um, and uh, if you have most of your identity coming from things you can't change, then it's going to be more discomforted and disturbed by your society changing around you, by the population of your town changing, or, uh, or, or, just, or just rapid social change that you can't ride as easily as the anyway. So I, I think it's these value and cultural divides in our society that are, that are much more important than, than economic divides now in some ways. We've, I mean, economic divides are not unimportant. We've had the, the Great Crash and we've had stagnant wages in both America and Britain for, for, for many years now. But I do think um, one of the... What, uh, and America is slightly different in this respect, in that uh, uh, whereas we're just getting used in Britain, I think, to, to the conventional form of socioeconomic politics that has dominated political discourse since the war uh, and indeed before. The socioeconomic politics uh, to do with social class, to do with... Um, or, or political identities wrapped up with social class to do with things, arguments about the size of the state, equality and inequality, um, um, size of public spending, things like that. Uh, those arguments have not disappeared. You know, we, we've been having them in the last um, few weeks, uh, but they've been they've been sort of almost eclipsed in some ways by socio-cultural politics, which itself is a response to the much greater openness 
of our societies over the past generation, both economic and cultural openness, which has created a, a reaction, I think in some ways a legitimate reaction, not particularly on the part of some ways, to, uh, to that openness. And, and security and identity issues have, have become far more important. And, um, and, and we've, we've kind of, we're inventing new vocabularies to talk about these things. Um, so um, I, I should perhaps stop there. As I say, I mean, the, um, I, I, mean I, I think there are differences between Britain and America in this, and, and I, but I, but I it, partly that, that America has, is far more used to socio-cultural uh, arguments than we are, but nonetheless, I think they've, they've taken on a particularly sharp expression in, in recent years, as, as we can see by the, um, by the election of um, Mr. Trump. Thanks, David. Right. Um, Sarah, how would you describe the divide? Um, well, I, um, in many ways, I don't disagree with the way that, that David just characterized that. Um, I think that the, um, but we're, we're going to be searching for metaphors. We're going to be looking for narratives, ways to think about the way that this divide, um, to put it like that, which is already, um, that already presupposes uh, certain ideas about how um, a culture is structured or is uh, is working to say that there is a divide. I think in America there is one right now, um, and um, and there is a real question about how to bridge that divide. Um, but I think that the um, and I agree that that the main in America certainly the main way to understand that divide is that it's a cultural one. It's sociocultural. Um, the, one of the ways that I've tried to understand it and to articulate it and to make sense of it, both to myself and, and um, to other people, but also to try to resituate the conversation so that we're not endlessly replaying the same binary categories and also that they're not, because the, the, those, some of our ideas about those binary categories are so received, they're so entrenched, um, that as soon as you use a certain label, then all kinds of associations come in train with that, and you can't disable those. You can't disarm them. Um, you can try, but nobody's listening. And um, and so the you know this idea that you know for example um, I, I'm an active um, Twitter uh, user, and um, and somebody tweeted the other day um, objecting to a Radio Four program I did about the American Dream, which is related to this this little book that I'm writing. Um, and I was talking about the, um, and you know, it's a 40 minute program, right? To try to encapsulate this really complicated problem. And there are lots of other speakers and you have to do archival footage so that it's interesting to listen to. So I basically had kind of like 10 minutes, right? To, to make this huge case mm -hmm. and to kind of do all of 20th century American history. Um, and this woman was complaining that I had typical leftist bias because I didn't talk about the history of the Democratic Party. And I was like, well, look, you know, and I didn't respond to her, but I was thinking as I saw that, I mean, <laughs> I'm not stupid. Um, but, um, but look, it wasn't because it wasn't a useful, it wasn't a useful venue to have that conversation. And because I wasn't going to be able to disarm, once she comes at it with those kinds of assumptions about my typical bias, what's that conversation's over before it's even begun. She's not listening. Um, but the, what interested me about it was the conflation of Democrat, oh, she didn't say leftist bias, she said liberal bias, right? The conflation of Democrat, liberal, and leftist that she was making, even as she was complaining that, the, that what it means to be a Democrat has changed. And I was like, so therefore the two things are not identical, but you're assuming that they are. And I agree with you that they are not. Um, so the, the way in which um, social and cultural attitudes in America have, have become 
uh, and, and here as well, have become attached to party political uh, um, categories is, is really, really problematic. And it is, as that woman was rightly suggesting, ahistorical. Certainly in America, the meanings of political parties have shifted uh, greatly. Right? So the Republicans were the party of Lincoln, they were the anti-slavery party, and then that, and she was absolutely right in that regard, um, that the, the, the Democrats were the pro-slavery party, um, and the racist party, and the party of white supremacism, the party of the KKK. Um, so that's just one little instance. So for me, a way to talk about um, the differences in America that brings in the question of religion, which is an incredibly important part of the cultural divide in America, that brings in race, which is the fault line across which that cultural divide falls in America, to bring in, to a certain extent, but to agree with David, the economics in a funny way, um, it's, it's not part of that cultural divide. It, it's just a, it's a symptom of it, but it's not actually a driver of it, in my view, um, uh, exactly. Um, it's to actually go back to the, is to talk about American history, but to go even further back and to point out that America is a country that is constantly referring back to its own genesis myth. But the fact is that we have two genesis myths, and they're competing. The first genesis myth, and, and they are myths, right? But the first genesis myth is that America was, and every American schoolchild learns this, that America was founded when the pilgrims landed on Plymouth Rock in 1620. That was when America was founded. And then, of course, we can have the conversations about the fact that there were people there before then, and then you can start to have that conversation. But still, the idea of America that is, that is inculcated in every American school child and has been for at least a century is that America was founded when the Pilgrims landed on Plymouth Rock and the Puritans began their settlement in Massachusetts. But the United States was created when the founding fathers. It always interests me that in Britain people talk about the Pilgrim Fathers, because in America we don't use that phrase. We say the Pilgrims and the Founding Fathers, and it's like the two things got conflated. Mm -hmm. um, the Founding Fathers are the people who wrote the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution in 1776, 150 years later, um, and the Constitution in 1789. Thomas Jefferson, George Washington, um, Benjamin Franklin. Those are our Founding Fathers. Um, those principles are Enlightenment philosophical European continental principles. Those come out of Rousseau and Locke and Voltaire. The other genesis myth is about Puritanism. It's about the Puritan work ethic, but it's also about uh, theocracy. It's about evangelicalism and it's about theocracy. And so one way for me to try to understand this and to, and to talk about it in hopefully more neutral terms, although theocracy is not a totally neutral word, I grant you. Um, it's, it has its slightly pejorative side. Um, but um, I'm not a fan of theocracy, it must be said. Um, but still, to, but I mean, you know, Mike Pence is a theocrat. That's what he believes in. Um, and, um, and so to say that there are, and, and, the, and the, you know, they don't want a separation of church and state. They, they are, you know, they are angry about separations of church and state. So, um, which you know, is the establishment clause in the, uh, in the constitution. So that's one way to talk about it, right? That there is this divide between basically the people who would identify as the children of the enlightenment tradition and who, are, and who are referring back to those principles as deeply American principles and 
virtues. And then those who would say, no, this is about America as a city on a hill, as this religious exemplum, as, and, and would have all of those um, theocratic traditions that they uh, would pull out and want to support. So, um, and, and you know, you can, you can follow that line all the way through America. It is a, it is a fault line that continued to, that, that never really got um, united and has continued to divide the countries if there are these tectonic plates that keep, um, that keep shifting. So, but, and, then, and then they come together in interesting ways. So just give one other example and then I'll be quiet, um, which is that the, um, a lot of people, um, in my experience, in both Britain and America, don't fully appreciate the degree to which the ending of institutional slavery in America was a result of a religious movement called the Second Great Awakening. And the sweeping of evangelical fervor across America in the early 19th century meant that something like you know, 95% of Americans at that time self-identified as Christian, and they were deeply, deeply concerned with trying to live a perfect Christian life. That was an ethos that was widely, widely shared, like, like overwhelmingly shared, um, to the point where, for example, um, Harriet Beecher Stowe's brother committed suicide, leaving a note saying that the reason was that he was not a good enough Christian, right? that he was failing to be a perfect Christian. So it was this very powerful uh, mechanism. And it was clear that slavery was incompatible with that. Um, and so a lot of the moral fervor that led to the abolition of slavery eventually was a religious moral fervor. And so although in our minds there are these kind of clear divides where um, people who are now you know, white supremacist or want to uh, uh, you know, protect the Confederate legacy in the Deep South would fall on the theocrat side of things. Historically in America, those that divide, what we are characterizing as a divide, has come together and then separated again and then come together again and then separated again. Um, the Civil War was obviously one of the great moments uh, where that came into crisis. came into crisis again in the 20s. It came into crisis again um, in the 50s. It has come into crisis, arguably maybe it did in the 70s, and now it has come into crisis again. So um, I, I think we have never united those two things. I think it is a very, very, very old divide, and, um, and it's... And it's um, and it's related to what Obama rightly called the original sin of slavery, and, and that's something that America has not uh, figured out how to, how to come together over. Thanks, Sarah. <coughs> Gabriel? Um, that was a magnificent historical sweep. Um, I'm going to go very micro and, and talk about a guy called Chad, um, <laughs> 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 who I met um, in Youngstown, Ohio, um, which used to be a great steel town uh, of the Midwest and is now not so much. Um, Chad is clinging on to his job. He's got four kids. He's a part-time pastor in the local church. He's homeschooling his kids because he's worried about what kind of ideologies the uh, national school curriculum might inculcate in his kids. And he's a really decent guy. Um, he works in the steel mill and uh, he said to me, Look, I don't have anything against the gay thing, right? But when we've got no jobs here, we're all losing our jobs, and all they can do in Washington is talk about transgender bathrooms, I don't feel like these people have got any idea of the kind of life that we live. And I'm like, wow, yeah, I get you. I, I mean, I may not agree with you that transgender bathrooms aren't important, but I understand why you don't feel represented by people in Washington, why you feel like there's a, there's a reality gap 
between what people in Washington are talking about, what people in the big cities on the coast are talking about, and what you're talking about amongst your friends. So, so that was like a really vivid uh, example of a, of a, a really deeply felt uh, reality gap that was driving this support for Donald Trump. And why was it driving a support for Donald Trump? I mean, he's, you know, he's a rich, uh, he's, he's, he's this, the rich man, a son of another rich man. Um, but he, he said stuff that, that indicated to people that he wasn't on the side of the politically correct. And political correctness, I think, was one of the big drivers of, is one of the big drivers of this great divide uh, in American society. And Donald Trump, whatever you think of him, is one of the least politically correct people <laughs> ever to have been elected. Um, to, uh, to public office. Um, so what Chad said to me was, you know, I feel like I can't say anything in public. I can't speak the way I would normally do without somebody calling me a bigot or a racist or, or any number of these things. And I feel like I'm walking on eggshells the whole time in my own country. And I want to take my country back. Um, it, in that sense, there were, there were echoes with Brexit and that very clever slogan, take back control. Um, and, I, and I think, um, and, and you addressed this, this, this is a cultural, a, a cultural divide and it's about um, cultural power. And I think um, that uh, what a lot of um, people who, who ended up voting for Trump, yes, there are economic issues, yes, there are issues of sort of rural versus urban and all of that, but. It, a lot of it was a, was a cultural thing about who, um, wh whose culture has cultural currency. One of the things that a lot of Trump voters would go absolutely crazy about, it would send them spitting with rage, was the fact that Beyonce and Jay-Z had been invited to the White House. But they have horrible lyrics. They got, you know, they got really worked up about that. And I felt like it wasn't so much about the, the lyrics, it was about Black culture, a culture that was not theirs, that they didn't feel like they had access to, was accorded this powerful status by being invited to the White House uh, under the tenure of a black president and suddenly realizing uh, as, as white working class, often male Americans, although by, by no means uh, exclusively male Americans, that their culture of hunting, shooting, uh, and uh, and all of that kind of thing that doesn't involve transgender bathrooms, how much, um, how much cultural currency that had lost in the, in the places where it mattered in Washington. And that's where you get drain the swamp, and that's where you get Donald Trump. <coughs> yeah, and, and just to stay on that point slightly, Gabriel, like aside from the political incorrectness, Trump was also um, going to towns where the Democrats used to campaign, like a place we went to in Johnstown, Pennsylvania, and he was saying things like, you see that factory over there, I think the fact that it's closed now is wrong. Um, and I suppose I, I'd be interested to hear your views on whether or not um, uh, the Democrats focus too much on social issues uh, rather than economic concerns. Sarah? Um, well, clearly that was um, part of how this played out. Um, you know, history is, I always say to my students, history is never monocausal, right? There are, you, you cannot ever find a single reason why some major 
political or historical rupture takes place. There will always be myriad reasons. And that, that cliche now of the perfect storm. You have to have all of the kind of conditions in place to allow for a Trump. And we have been to, <laughs> for example, to just take one out of the air. Um, and, um, and in my view, we've been, we've been trying too hard. It's understandable. It's human nature. But we've been trying too hard to find the reason why Trump got elected and to find um, and to say it was because of this. You know, it was the economy stupid or it was um, it was, you know, Hillary had a bad campaign. If only Hillary had gone to Wisconsin, it all would have played out differently. Um, the, um, the, de the degree to which, as Gabriel suggests, um, there was very clearly among a certain part of the population a, uh, a racial backlash. There was a backlash against a black man in the White House. Um, that continues. Um, there was a, some of you might have seen this, there was a woman in West Virginia who held public office. I forget what she was, but she was a, uh, a kind of minor, uh, or she, she was being, she was like a developer, but she was being paid by the, um, uh, by the, you know, the local government. And, um, and she uh, put, posted on Facebook after the election um, something like, um, and I'm, and I'm going to uh, quote her as accurately as I can. It was something like, um, thank God now that Melania Trump is going to be um, in the White House, we'll finally have a classy woman instead of an ape, uh, ape in heels. Can I just finish the thought? Because then what happened was Melania just put out a message the other day, and I forget what pretext it was. It was maybe it was for Memorial Day or something. Anyway, she, there was some reason why she made some public message. And, the, and it began with, um, and it was on her Facebook page, and it began with, um, I get many, many messages about how, how um, everybody is glad that I have brought a classy presence back to the White House. So that word, oh, oh, oh no, I know what it was. She said, the, the classiest first lady since, wait for it, Laura Bush. <laughs> huh, what was the only other woman who was not there? And what makes Michelle Obama not classy? Classy has become very clearly, to my mind, a code word here. We're talking, we're pretending to talk about class, and we're very, very clearly doing that in order not to talk about race, which is what's actually driving that particular segment. But my point is that's not the only reason. There are many, many reasons. I, I, on, on the racial backlash, I, I, you felt that very, very strongly in America. It was absolutely a racial backlash. Um, but it wasn't necessarily a racist backlash. So I think this is all, again, about... It was um, partly a racist backlash. It was partly a racist <laughs> backlash. But, but actually, a lot of people, um, like Chad, I don't think was, was racist, but, uh, but I do think he felt like black culture was, was something that he had no access to and was separate from, and that that had more power and, mm. and in a... In a uh, zero-sum game situation, mm. that meant he had less power. So I think... Let me chip in. Um, <laughs> Don't worry, I'm sure uh, you'll have plenty of time to speak to him. <laughs> I mean, uh, yeah, when I have this concept of, of kind of decent populism uh, in, in my book, and I think, uh, you know, Chad sounds like a decent populist. And I think part, part of the argument here is, and indeed part of what, you know, is, we, we, all, we all have to wrestle with is what the dividing line is between decent and indecent populism. Um, and racism is one obvious dividing line, except that um, definitions of racism are themselves part of the contest between liberals and conservatives, uh, or, or liberals and centrists, you might say. I mean, I think, you know, the standard definition of racism, I guess, you know, is, is that, that it tends to be held by conservatives and centrists is that it's about, um, you know, dislike of, contempt for uh, uh, the other or some, some outsider group defined by race or religion or whatever, um, 
or race, if we're talking about racism. Um, and, and obviously liberals accept that sort of standard definition, but they would go further and they say it's also about having too strong an attachment to your own group, whether, it, whether it's national <coughs> or ethnic. And obviously, it is possible to have too strong an attachment to your own group. Um, you know, that's why we have, we have race discrimination laws and so on. But it's about that, you know, Chad, you know, feels his own, his own group. He feels his own ethnicity. You know, white people have, have ethnicity too. Uh, you know, there's a way of life that, that he's connected to. And, the, and he thinks that is perfectly legitimate. And, and I think so too. It is perfectly legitimate, obviously. But it means... In some people's eyes, you know that, that this is this is closed. This is this is unacceptable um, and and is racist. But I think again, with the in, a, in the in the American context in particular, the, um, the 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 history and the reality of this is so complex because it's gone on for so long and because it is a legacy of slavery. It's a legacy of institutional slavery. So much of what's happening right now is literally and figuratively built on the foundations of slavery, right? So, for instance, the prison system, which, which hugely, you know, I'm sure you all know this, right? It mass, the, the, the proportion of, of African Americans going through the American um, prison system versus white people is just, you know, crazily disproportionate, right? But many of those prisons are literally geographically built on former slave plantations, right? And they were turned into prisons in the Jim Crow era in order to incarcerate black people. And that's historically, I mean, this is not disputed by any serious historian. And, and then, and now it's turning into a for-profit prison system. So now they're bringing in a for-profit prison, prison system where people like Dick Cheney are making money from, through Halliburton, from the prison system. The, the, the point about um, nice Chad, who's making, reminding me of Plumber Joe or whatever that guy was in the last election, um, is that, um, and, and Gabriel's absolutely right. When it's perceived as a zero-sum game, the problem with, with adequately talking about the difference between race, race, a racialized country and a racist country, which are indeed different things, um, is that you have to recognize the degree to which race and class in America have for so long been really messily uh, um, intertwined so that black people were and are an economic underclass. They're not coterminous with the economic underclass. There are poor white people. But one of the ways that American society worked for a very long time um, was that it, that, and, and you know, take somebody like um, William Faulkner is brilliant on this in Absalom, Absalom, which is in 1936. He's one of the first writers that I know of to, to, to see this and to say it. Um, that the poor white people, that, that, their, that the, their sense of racial superiority was basically the, the, it was the sop that they were thrown for their um, you know, denial of access to power. And, and he's, you know, by 1936, Faulkner is very, very clear that that's what's happening and that's how it works. And that if you take away that sense of racial mm -hmm. superiority, you will have violence. Um, and that's I, why you saw people getting so upset at Beyonce and Formation, indeed. because it's a strong black woman absolutely. being powerful financially, culturally, and all of that kind of stuff. Yeah, absolutely. But, uh, sorry, and just one more thought, and then, um, but because, so we've been focusing on race, because as I say, race is a very important part of this, and racism is an important part of it. But, you know, in terms of the, the question about, you know, was it, was it about, um, you know, the Democrats talking about social categories instead of talking about economics? Well, yes and no, because nobody wanted to talk about the fact that Hillary was the first woman candidate, right? 
um, they wanted to talk about the fact that she would, they wanted to call her an establishment candidate. Well, I don't buy the idea that the first person to ever, ever, ever come anywhere near the White House um, of her gender is an establishment candidate. She was not an establishment candidate. And yet she could be painted as an establishment candidate. Um, and so again, the complexity is that people want to be able to simplify it. The complexity of the way that she got to power through her relationship with Clinton, through being first lady, through all of that stuff and all of that messy history, people want to just come down and say, oh, she's establishment. And we could pretend that misogyny plays or sexism plays no role in this when sexism did play a role in it, but it was not the only reason but why obviously she was. she was an establishment candidate. I mean, you know, she was a quite, quite extreme anywhere, you know, and the former wife of a, of a, of a president. I mean, of course she was. Look, Remember the establishment. I, I mean, the point about tr Trump was an attractive. Trump was part of the establishment. Of course. But he was part of the entrepreneurial wing of the establishment. You know, he, not exactly a self-made man, it's true, but he had made <laughs> absolutely, you know, but, but he made, he'd made a lot more. And working class Americans admire entrepreneurs. They do not admire He's people they regard bankrupt. as bossy professionals women. who tell them what to do. <laughs> who no, who happen to be well. women. Well, in this case, um, a, a woman. But, yeah. Uh, so, and who are bossy. Men are not bossy. Men are I, never called bossy. I don't, I don't think it's any coincidence that mm. the uh, first presidential campaign where pussy grabbing was an issue. Thank you. Was, <laughs> Thank was, you. was the first presidential campaign where a woman was running. So I, th I think that must obviously have, have, it played, have played in. And, the, and precisely the point of the way that double standard plays out. So that Trump is totally establishment, as you just said, and yet he will be talked about as if he's not establishment. And Hillary is in many ways not an establishment candidate. In some ways you can make the case, but in many ways not. And nobody wanted to talk about the ways in which she wasn't. And they only wanted to focus on the ways in which she was in order to, to, um, uh, uh, to devalue her, her candidacy. And, and that just goes on and on and on, right? And so you can do that with sort of every, and that's why I'm trying to say, the, there are many, many, many factors that played into this. And the question of working class economic resentment or economic anxiety, as it's now called, is just one of many. Um, it is not the only thing that brought Trump to power. We, people don't want to talk about the affluent white middle class people who voted for Trump. But of which I met many. Yeah, in, absolutely. In, so I know some. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, um, and, they, and they did it because he thought they thought he would make them richer. Gabriel, I don't know what you found, but when we were traveling around, particularly places like Youngstown and Johnstown, Pennsylvania, <clears throat> there weren't many Trump voters that we were, we were meeting in that part of America who didn't at least acknowledge the compromise that they were making by choosing Trump. They would say, I know he said misogynistic things. I know that... He didn't mean them. Um, yeah, That's yeah. What they said. sometimes, really sometimes, but but it was about them. It was about them saying that they um, were prioritizing something that they just didn't feel like the other candidate was talking about. Is I that think I, I, I think a lot of them liked the fact that he was saying misogynistic things, mm -hmm. but they didn't want to say it because it's um, not politically correct. Because it's not politically correct, precisely. So, so um, they felt like um, American culture had been captured by a politically correct elite on either coast and in the big cities um, that involved being feminist, uh, not being racist, uh, you know, just being, uh, not, not so worrying stifling. about uh, transgender. <laughs> I, I, I think, to be fair, to, to, um, to these people, they, they feel like political correctness is stifling. I, I, was, being, I was being sarcastic. Oh, I know you're, you're being, right, yeah, no, okay. I was ventriloquizing yeah. them. It's so stifling yeah, yeah, having okay. to and, not be a racist and, and not be a misogynist. Yeah. It's just so but, containing. But you see, but you see I, think, I think the issue, the issue is, 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 is one of, of, of a shifting culture. And actually, somebody in, um, in Indiana talked to me about this. Uh, and they, they, they were talking about the issue of gay marriage and how um, Obama had um, legislated uh, for gay marriage and pushed it through um, in the face of opposition from various states, and um, 
and, and, and on the evening, I think, that it went through, they, they lit up the White House in, in the rainbow colours. And, and this, this was a liberal couple I was talking to who, who were in favour of gay marriage. But they were saying, you should have seen the way it went down here. People were almost ready for it. They were almost ready for it. Given it another 10 years, they would have, they would have got there. But what they saw was the White House lit up in the rainbow colours and they felt like they had their noses rubbed in it and they were told, you are bad people. You are bad people for not agreeing with this. And you know what? We've got the power, so fuck you. Um, so so that, is, that was the feeling and that was the thing that, that, that people were, were, were pushing back against. And so when they got a, when they got a candidate who said, uh, who talked about pussy grabbing, they were like, yeah, do you know what? Yeah, we'll go for that because, because he's not one of them. You've already, you've already touched on this, Gabriel, but like two slogans from last year, take back control and make America great again. They, it suggests that there's some role, we've already touched on this, that nostalgia was playing um, and a kind of reach for something prior. Um, uh, David, wh where does that fit into your model, that the role of nostalgia in the results of last year? Um, I think a, a lot of people are nostalgic for the past because the past was often better for people like them um, going back 40 or 50 years. I mean, I think the idea that nostalgia is always sort of just another word for sort of political stupidity, I think, is, is wrong. Um, now, people may be richer now than they were 40 years ago, but I think in, in many respects, people feel less respected. I mean, particularly if you're in the bottom half of the income spectrum, you feel you don't, you don't, have, a, you don't have esteem, you don't have a place, you don't have... Know, jobs that gave you recognition, particularly, um, you know, our societies have become so much more dominated by um, by cognitive elites. You know, people who are cognitively able run our societies. It's the, the sort of definition, the gold standard of uh, of what it is to to be a, a sort of successful, almost perhaps even a good person, is to be cognitively able to you know been through university and and have a have a used kind of analytical intelligence. Um, and that's a relatively recent development. Um, you know, Michael Young warned about, about what might happen if we had a, uh, a, you know, a kind of quasi-meritocratic uh, society dominated by cognitive elites who, um, precisely because they have got there through their own achievements, are, are often rather arrogant about it and don't feel any connection to, to the ordinary people of the country in a way that that um, you know, past political classes often have felt that. I'm not sure the aristocracy uh, has always been immune from arrogance. Indeed, <laughs> not arrogance, but it had a you know, but you know, but you know, Lord Grantham, you know, worried about modernising you know the, the farms. Uh, you know, uh, um, <laughs> How noblesse of him. Um, yeah, well, exactly. Noblesse oblige was a, a very important thing, and it, and it continued. You know, it continued. It was sort of handed down to to more democratic elites. I think in the, in the 20th century, and a, a feeling that that has gone and uh, and. Uh, you know, and it's the the disappearance. You know, the, the creation of this sort of um, no one's consciously created, but the, the kind of evolution of this what do we call it? Sort of hourglass labour market. You know, if you're not part of the cognitive elite, or there are certain, certain jobs still that um, that command respect, require a lot of educa education to do, are reasonably highly paid. Uh, there are a few jobs in the middle, and there are a lot of jobs that you know you can be trained in half an hour to do. Mm. And the jobs that that the old industrial system used to have jobs that required, didn't require a huge amount of cognitive ability, but did require a lot of experience to do well. So, you know, some clever clogs from Harvard couldn't just come along and do it as well as you. Uh, 
and that offered people a kind of a, a status and a protection uh, that I think a lot of people feel they've lost. <clears throat> That's perhaps a parallel, <clears throat> that nostalgia thing between Trump and uh, Brexit. And I'm wondering, <coughs> excuse me, um, if we can move on to talk about that a little bit more. Uh, what parallels can be drawn between uh, the election in America and the Brexit voter here in the UK, if any? Gabriel? Well, I, we're talking about the reality gap. Um, and uh, all Americans know that America is the greatest country on earth. You'd agree with that, um, I'm sure, um, because that's that's what that's what. I would agree that, that all Americans know, know that. that. Yes, yes. indeed. <laughs> um, um, however, if you um, uh, wander certain streets in Baton Rouge, as I did uh, in the week before um, uh, Donald Trump's inauguration, um, it resembles more some of the war zones that I've reported from in Iraq, literally, I'm not, I'm not kidding, um, than, uh, than a first world country, let alone the greatest country um, in the world. Um, so there's, an, uh, there's a reality gap there and, and, and somebody who promises to make America great again, um, as opposed to somebody who says, but America's already great um, when you're Hillary Clinton. That, that can be quite attractive. Now, in the, in the British case, I, I think the genius of this phrase, take back control for the campaign, um, lies in this huge cognitive dissonance that has happened in Britain since the Second World War, uh, which we've barely begun to address or even think about as a nation, which is um, we, have, we were amazingly victorious against all the odds uh, against Nazi Germany in 1945. Uh, and that was accompanied by the most catastrophic loss of power on the world stage as the empire collapsed. It just disappeared. It's just, you know, in, in the space of a decade and a half, it's gone. Um, but we haven't really addressed that. We've all kind of gone, well, empire was a bad thing. We don't do that anymore. And, 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 but we still think that Britain bestrides the globe in, in, and controls. And, we, and, and, and it was in the language of Brexit, Brexiteers, buccaneering, trading <laughs> nation. You know, it, it was all the language of empire. Um, and I don't think it's so much that, that Britons uh, are nostalgic for empire, because I, you know, we, some people may be, but I, I think, I think we, we, we've moved on from it. Um, but, but we haven't come to terms with the fact that we are a small island off the northwest coast of, of Europe. Um, and that actually, by rights, we, we shouldn't really have very much power. And our power is dwindling. It dwindled fast and is dwindling further. Um, so this idea of taking back control as, as Brits by, by leaving a, a, a federalistic bureaucracy that, that might be telling us what to do, uh, and that therefore, without even being told, we might, we might return to the glory days of of empire. Yeah, but come that on, Gabriel. Really I mean, we're, we're, we're not just a little island. I mean, whether you well, like it not? or not, we are the fifth or is it sixth largest economy why, uh, in why the world. Why are we that? Why, we are, why are we you know, we have, a, we have a permanent seat on the UN Security Council. Because of empire. We are... Well, yeah. Um, partly. <laughs> um, we have, um, you know, we're probably the, probably the third, third most powerful militarily country in the because world. Because of these empire. Things, <laughs> these things count for quite a lot. Because of empire. You well, know, you know well, you're know, you dying no, I mean, to say that a country punches above its weight. Go on, you know you want to say it. Britain punches above its weight. It's my favourite it's my favourite British. But it depends how heavy you think. But it's all because of empire. We, 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 we wouldn't have a seat on the Security Council. We wouldn't have the, the third largest military. We wouldn't have any of that if it weren't for empire. So, so this is all the legacy no, of empire. No, I'm not sure that's true, actually. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, to what extent did... Um, um, did colonising India 
give us. I mean, you know, look, we did also have the Industrial Revolution. I mean, we were which, we were the which, first really empire, rich country. Which was funded by well, 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 partly, by, partly, by slaves, yeah, actually, partly. by sugar plantations um, um, in the West Indies. Um, but yeah, I mean, there there is you know you can't take the empire out of British history. But I mean, you know, we are you know post empire. We remained a very powerful country. Um, in decline. There are, there are big. In um, decline. We, we decline. What, what depends? What you mean by decline? I mean, well, when people talk about decline like that, and, and I mean, it sort of sounds like imperial nostalgia. I mean, we declined in the sense that we didn't boss, you know, half a billion Indians around any longer. But we be we become oh. consistently richer, at least until 2008. No, I think I think, well, I think um, what I think um, what, what it is actually is that um, is that we have as a country, and this goes for many other countries as well, um, uh, we have less control over our own destiny. I think, uh, and that's that's a function of a lack of. Um, being able to control other people's destiny is that you also have less control of your own destiny. And that's why people have such a, a beef with the EU, because that feels like the mm. thing that's telling mm. you what to do. So you know, by controlling the yeah. whole globe, at least at home, you can, you can do what you like. That's true. Um, we're, when we're, when yeah. you've lost power to uh, you know, faceless bureaucracies and multinational yeah, companies, it, it's you more need painful. to take back if, control. More, if you've been a sort of price giver yeah. rather than the price taker. Exactly then you know, becoming a price taker. You know, we're, we're somewhere in between. I mean, we are still a price giver, but we're also a price taker. Most small, you know, one of the reasons why most countries would never dream of leaving the European Union is they've never been price givers. They've always been price takers, and they feel they have a little bit more price sort of giving power. You know, you know particularly you know, any of the countries under, with a population of under 20 million, say, have always just been kind of bossed around by by, by bigger countries, and now they feel that they that they can do a little bit of bossing. It's even boss if or be bossed. I, if, even if they're one of twenty-eight or thirty, yeah, and that. But, but that we, that never happened to us, and we were never we were always psychologically sort of semi-detached from from the EU for that reason. Okay, um, that's all we've got time for. Thank you so much to Sarah Gabriel and David. <laughs>